What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Three Geeks Podcast. It's going to be a quick one today. Uh, my name is Jason. I Everybody was on some levels of busy, and I'm actually going to be busy at the time we would normally go live. So I figured I'd come on here, do a quick intro, uh, touch on the Disney stuff briefly, very briefly, and then I'll come back with uh, Max and some sort of the guys this week, and we will do a full in-depth discussion about it. And then I'm going to throw it to an interview we did with uh, Mr. Steve Rubin, who uh, was an absolute delight to talk to. He is the author of the James Bond Complete Encyclopedia. The guy is just knowledge in human form. He knows all there is to know about James Bond and all the fun stuff that, you know, comes with James Bond, why we love James Bond. And we get into discussions about some of the behind the scenes stuff with Sean Connery and Bond and why never, never say never happened and so much cool, fun stuff. But first of all, I am going to do this real quick. I am going to discuss with everybody all of this fun Disney news that we got this week. And I do want to say that, um, like I said, I'm going to run through this really quick. I'm going to touch on some of the stuff that I was super excited about. And then we'll pull all the guys together this week and we'll do some kind of a special broadcast. But um, what I wanted to touch on is why The Last Man. I read some of the comic book franchise and I absolutely love the story. I'm really glad that FX is the network that's putting it out. FX is responsible for a lot of really cool stuff and... Yeah, super, super stoked. Alien, I'm a little bit more hesitant on. However, it is being done by Noah Hawley, who has, in my opinion, a great track record with television. So I am curious about Alien. I don't know. I, I don't know if it'll be any good or not. Alien is a very hit and miss franchise. More misses than hits. Even even though I like most of them, I, I acknowledge that, you know, some of them are very good. But, um... Yeah, that's that's gonna be awesome. And then I I, I want to wait on the guys to discuss some of this stuff. But we got you know Rangers of the New Republic and Ahsoka both taking place during the same time frame as the Mandalorian, and I'm curious to see where we go with that. Uh, Hayden Christensen is back as yeah. Darth Vader, and I'm glad. I I really am. Uh, Obi Wan is one of the franchise, one of these little short series that I'm looking for forward to. I, I like the idea of you and McGregor coming back. I don't know how it'll fit into the timelines, and but I am optimistic and super curious on how they how they do this. Like, are we watching Obi Wan on Tatooine for? They, I think they said four to six episodes, or does he go on some kind of a secret mission where he gets to have that that big fight with Darth Vader that was kind of referenced in um, A New Hope? You know, before I was but a student because he was a student of. The Emperor, but we'll see. I um, I'm curious. Um, Cassie and Andor. I know most of the guys on the podcast are not big fans of prequels, but I really liked Rogue One. I I liked it more than a lot of people did, and I know, I know it's a pretty pretty loved film, but like that's my favorite Star Trek Star Wars movie. I apologize for that Freudian slip. That's a big mistake, but um, I I like the idea because I the characters in Rogue One's why I liked the film so much. And I am extremely curious to revisit the characters. And I know, unfortunately, we won't get to see 
some of the other ones because, you know, they don't meet until later on. But Andor is a good choice, and I am looking forward to checking that out. We got The Bad Batch, which is a new um, animated series along the lines of The Clone Wars and Rebels. Visions is what I'm curious about. They're bringing in, uh, you know, directors of popular Japanese anime to do, like, short stories that's set in the Star Wars universe. And that's one that piqued my interest. Uh Willow. I've never seen Willow. I should probably watch Willow considering um I'm a huge fan of all this stuff. Uh Emilio Estevez is confirmed for the Mighty Ducks. Which, you know, we can all roll our eyes at the Mighty Ducks and I I can too. I'm I I'm more excited about this than I should be, but also we live in the age of post Cobra Kai, which Cobra Kai is way better than it should have been. You've all heard us, you know, just expressing our love for Cobra Kai, at least, you know, the, those of us that have seen it. So it's hard to rule anything out as being bad. If the right team is surrounding anything, I think good things can come. I, I love all three of the original Mighty Ducks movies. Obviously, some are way better than others. But um, I am more than cautiously optimistic about that. I am also, weirdly, I don't know why, I got really excited and I went, yeah, for Sister Act 3. I don't know. I don't know why, but for some reason that uh, that got me excited. And I cannot wait to see what we get with that. Whoopi Goldberg is coming back as uh, her character. And uh, I, I don't know, it, it got me. And then they also announced another one that got me kind of excited because I really love the original, both of them. But the first one, especially uh, directed by Litter Nimoy, which was Three Men and a Baby. They announced that Zac Efron is coming back to play the, to be in the movie. Or not coming back, I'm sorry. He's coming to be a character in the movie. I could totally see him in the Tom Selleck role. So I'm really curious who they surround him with. And um, I'm curious. I'm very, very curious i wish that we had gotten uh three men and like a bride with the original cast because i i love steve gutenberg i love ted danson and everybody likes tom Selleck. so i think that whether i don't think it would necessarily be a great movie by any stretch of the imagination but it would be i think fun to see them see them all come back you know I know that um, I speak for Max when I say that he was super excited to find out that Baymax was uh, announced. It's We talked a little bit about the stuff. We broke our rules because we knew today was going to be a chaotic day and you know a lot of us were going to be super busy. And um, actually, this wasn't even supposed to happen. I didn't plan on going live and talking about these things real quick, but I didn't want to miss the opportunity to do so. But then um, I'm going to skip up a little bit. Like I said, we're going to go more into depth with a lot of the stuff. But uh, Marvel came out. I think Marvel's announcement was a mic drop because there is very few he things here that I'm not, I wouldn't say, excited about. I like uh, that WandaVision and Loki look a little bit more um, different. Like they, they seem like very different stories. They're a little weird on the weird side. I have a feeling WandaVision is going to set up this multiverse thing that we're going to be exploring in Loki and then Doctor Strange. And so forth, but um, yeah, one division looks weird, and I cannot wait for it. I I love that it's getting a little experimental with these uh, Marvel shows, and 
yeah, those two especially stood out for me. Uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier looks like, you know, the typical action movie drawn from the 80s, 90s action films that I grew up with and that I loved very, very much. Uh, some of the other stuff, uh, What If, What If looks awesome. We get a little glimpse of, spoiler alert, uh, zombie Captain America at the end of it, and I, I love that. I love that they can use this series to give us, you know, what ifs different different stories that aren't tied to the overall story arc we found out that uh shang chi has finished filming which is one that um a lot of the guys are super excited about ms marvel who i didn't know anything about until i got the avengers game on the xbox and she's a great character i like also one of the things that really stood out to me uh, about marvel's announcement is how diverse their creators are going to be for this next phase and that's super exciting. I also respect the fact that they're not recasting Chadwick Boseman and that Chadwick Boseman will supply the voice in the What If series. So we'll get to see him, you know, one more time, which I thought was super cool. Uh, we got the Hawkeye announcement, which is one of the series. That's, eh, I I don't really care. Hawkeye is not my favorite. But then again, a lot of these things that I have watched from Marvel, I have not been super excited about. And they've on some levels entertain me. She-Hulk is one that I'm super curious about. They even made a point in the announcement to mention that she's a lawyer. So you never know who could show up, which I thought was a subtle hint at uh, Daredevil. But uh, we got Mark Ruffalo confirmed to be in it. And uh, Tim Roth is returning as Abomination, which, you know, I'm glad that they're pulling more from that 2008 movie because I think it's one of the most underrated Marvel movies, The Incredible Hulk. And Tatiana Masolani, who we initially got super excited about being She-Hawk, and then she came out and said, I'm not She-Hawk, and then she can't, they officially announced that she is, in fact, She-Hawk. Uh, Moon Knight, unfortunately, I don't know a lot about Moon Knight, so this is one of the ones we're going to get into with the other guys. Secret Invasion is another one I'm super excited about. Ironheart looks phenomenal. I mean, sorry, it doesn't look phenomenal. It sounds phenomenal. I wonder if Robert Downey will be back as the voice of the suit because I believe that's how I don't I don't know a lot about the characters. Uh, Armor Wars with Rhodey's another one. It's like um, the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. I'm very curious about uh, as somebody who's seen the Star Wars special. You know, holiday specials are always a creepy, scary thing. I am Groot. I don't really know much about that other than it's probably for children uh, and. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania, which is one that I'm excited about. Ant-Man and the Wasp uh, was, it had one of the funniest moments in a Marvel movie where Scott Lang is, you know, the small little guy running around the school. I really, I laugh every time I watch that movie. And then one of the things I was super excited about is that um, Marvel's first family, Fantastic Four, is coming. We're getting a Marvel-produced, directed Fantastic Four movie, and the fact that they're calling it Marvel's First Family makes me think that they, it's going to be a Captain America situation where they went back into the, um, um, like when they were in the past, they, they whatever happened happened, and then when they get fall out of it, it's going to happen now. But um, lots of awesome stuff from Disney, and I am, I'm excited to see what's coming. They. Um, they really dropped a mic on their announcements and so forth. And again, super optimistic. But right now, I am going to throw this over to uh, Justin and I interviewing Steve Rubin. But before I do that, please check us out at 3geeks.ninja. 
Jump on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at 3GeeksPodcast. We're everywhere. Check out our buddies, uh, John and Mike. John at PVDMVP. Go to PVDCast.com. And Mike, go to YouTube.com forward slash Mike McGTV, where you can see all the great content that Mike is always putting out. Mike is one of the hardest working men in YouTube. And he's one of the reasons I wanted to become a YouTuber. I, I, I really respect what Mike does. And I'm sorry, this freaking Matt Talk banner has been up the whole time. And everybody's going to think I did this on purpose, which I did not. So there we go. Let me get rid of Matt Talk. There we go. Boom. And anyway, um, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, listening to me ramble. Like I said, I'll pull the guys together. We're going to go in depth because there's going to be a lot of fighting because I know Max is completely against going backwards in Star Wars. While I I like to see the journeys, as long as they don't explain too much, if we get maybe we can introduce new characters by you know going through some of these stories that we can explore at later dates or whatever. But um, again, thank you guys for tuning in and check out the interview we did with Mr. Steve Rubin. Appreciate it. Sure. Absolutely. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Three Geeks interview with Justin and I. We are joined today by Steve Rubin. Steve, how's it going today? It's going great. Uh, I, I feel great. Uh, the weather's cooling off in Southern California and uh, enough with the heat. Uh, I want to start with your two books that you've written. Uh, so so you've you got, got the, the James Bond Encyclopedia coming out the next week. The James then, Bond movie encyclopedia. Okay. And then you've got, you you made the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. I can't imagine how much work that goes into that because you've got two very hardcore fan bases that are going to run out and grab this book. Uh, I want to start with your like two how, books that you've written. How much time and energy goes into making sure, you know, all the facts are correct and so on and so forth. Years, years. You know, um, when I first contemplated the idea of doing the Bond Encyclopedia back in 1990, uh, it was, um, it, well, I had done a lot of research. I had published a book before back in the 80s called the James Bond Films of Behind the Scenes History. So I had done kind of a, a cradle to grave. Well, it actually wouldn't be considered cradle to grave because Bond hasn't died. Let's just say a soup to nuts uh, behind the scenes history. So I had a, a lot of the facts, but I, I really wanted to explore more about the backgrounds of the people involved, you know, and that applied also to the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. Who were these people, most of whom are dead? And what was their place in Hollywood at the time? So it takes a lot, a lot of work. Um, it, and the, even equally as important is finding the illustrations because as much as I try to put copy out that's punchy and fun, I think at the end of the day, people look at these books for the photos, uh, particularly Bond, because uh, there's been a lot of James Bond books and there's a lot of stuff on the net. So I did a worldwide search and I'm very proud of the illustrations. This is the first James Bond encyclopedia I've done that features a lot of color. Okay. Yeah, I will say just going through the photos and stuff. I love them. I, I spent some time and went through. I'm a big fan of the photos you grabbed. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it required a trip to Europe. Uh, I have collector friends all over the world, and they opened their files to me, and uh, I'm very, very happy with the way things turned out. I also got some terrific illustrators, uh, including Jeff Marshall, who did those wonderful uh, conceptual uh, posters for the series. 
Okay. Are you a huge James Bond fan, I assume? Yeah, I guess you could say that. I uh, <laughs> you, you, you now are, right? Yeah, well, I, I um, well, it all started, my dad used to go on business trips and he'd bring home Westerns. And I had absolutely no interest in reading Westerns. It just wasn't my thing. I was 11 years old. He came home one day and plopped Goldfinger in my lap. And I'm looking at this paperback cover with a nude woman on the cover. She's all in gold, and she, her her uh, her private parts were covered. But uh, it, had, it left an immediate impression on me, particularly when I dug into the book and I, I started to read all the Fleming novels. And as an impressionable preteen, it was uh, quite an experience. And then um, this is about the time the third movie was released. Uh, Christmas '64 was a big. Big time for Bond. Uh, the first two James Bond movies, Dr. No and From Russia with Love, were released relatively low-key, traditional, nothing too fancy in terms of premiere and profile. But Goldfinger pulled out all the stops that year. I would compare it today to the arrival of an Avengers movie or, uh, you know, an, a new Spider-Man. It's just a big, big deal. So uh, I, I had, well, I'd read the book, so I got to go see the movie. And Goldfinger, to this day, uh, 56 years later, still my favorite Bond movie. So for somebody like me, I've only seen a couple of the James Bond movies. I've seen Dr. No, which I watched recently because I planned on watching them in order. And then I've seen uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. Where is a good place to start? Right where you started, Dr. No. I think you got to watch them from the beginning because they go through periods of change. You know, they, they start out very gritty and serious and they start to get a little funny. Uh, although there was humor in all the movies and even in the first Dr. No, when James Bond's being chased by the hearse, the hearse goes over the cliff and the construction worker comes running up and says, what happened? What happened? And Bond says, I think they were on their way to a funeral. I mean, that, that kind of dry throwaway humor was Connery, was Sean Connery's, you know, his strength. And uh, but they got a little more directly funny with Goldfinger and they kept the comedy in check through the first six films. And then starting with the arrival of Roger Moore in the 70s. Bond became much more lighter entertainment, and interestingly enough, even more popular. I I, I have seen Moonraker. I forgot to mention that one. So yeah, I I understand Roger Moore is a lot more com comical. Are you a huge fan of Daniel Craig? I am. I am. I thought that Daniel Craig kind of uh, rocked it when he debuted in 2006 in Casino Royale. We kind of disparaged him at first, like this unknown blonde Bond. Come on. But after seeing the first 10 minutes of Casino Royale, you are riveted to the screen. And he is, he's really been terrific. Uh, the movies, uh, the, the Daniel Craig movies have been a little up and down. I won't say that they're all terrific, but I think he's always terrific. I just wish the writers, you know, wrote a little bit more carefully for him. No, absolutely. Do you have a favorite of the Bonds? Well, I, I would have to say that the, the, it's axiomatic that you're, the Bond you grew up with is your Bond. So obviously, Sean Connery is going to be my guy. But I would say that Daniel Craig's right up there. I mean, he's brought the movies into the 21st century big time. And consequently, he's got another huge following. And the series, unfortunately, due to COVID, it's been kind of stalled. We we're trying to wait to see the last Daniel Craig. But No Time to Die will be upon us sooner than later. I, I've heard that Timothy Dal Dalton was a very underrated Bond. Is that true? 
in your opinion? I'm I'm trying to be objective about Timothy because, first of all, one of Britain's top actors. You know, he's definitely a a terrific actor. Uh, He was very serious about his portrayal. He did his research. But the problem with Timothy's Bond is that it's kind of, it's, it lacks kind of an ingredient, uh, perhaps a charisma ingredient, certainly a, a certain panache. He's somewhere midway between Roger and Sean. Uh, I think he was a good Bond, but the movies were not terrific. Interestingly enough, his first Bond, The Living Daylights, was written for Pierce Brosnan. But Pierce Brosnan couldn't get out of his contract with Remington Steele. So he did. I mean, Living Daylights is okay. I think it's a good Bond entry. But License to Kill, the sequel, was way too serious. Uh, there was very little humor. Uh, it played like a, a Miami Vice feature-length episode, you know, kind of a lackluster caper dealing with a drug lord. And although, it's like all the Bond movies, it was produced beautifully and with a lot of care and attention, it just didn't rise. And I think because of that, Timothy was gone. Hmm. Now, hearing you speak about Bond, you're definitely the right person to write this because you're very objective in all of the statements. Like, Timothy Dalton's obviously not one of your favorites, but you were able to give a very, like, good presentation on his movies without, you know, being too negative, I guess. Well, he's standing right here. Let me bring him on the screen. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, thank you. Thank you. I, 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 I started my career as a journalist, so I have to be pretty objective. And I also find... I, there's enough people out there who are hysterical about their opinions. I'm not that guy. <laughs> yeah, we have a guy on our podcast who's very hysterical about his opinions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Justin, do you have a question about the book? Uh, no, I just I, I think it's interesting. I went right to due to the news this week, right? I went right to Sean Connery, and I thought you did a wonderful write up on Sean in, in in your book, and it, it was a good elaboration on his career as a Bond and. Any fun stories you remember researching for Sean Connery or that being that Bond? Well, I, I, I was a couple of, uh, I'm, I'm was good friends with the late publicist, Jerry Pam. In 62, he called, or actually 63, called up the movie theater and said, what's playing? And the uh, person says, seeing Connery and Dr. Number. I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> that was funny. And then uh, there was some story, I don't even know if this has been corroborated, but um, uh in French, the word Sean, the words Sean Connery sounds like Song Connery, which means without balls. I'm not quite sure exactly if that's true. <laughs> I thought that was that got a few snickers in France, but Connery was just. I, I, how do I describe him? You don't have actors like Sean Connery come along very often. I mean, he crossed. He was like a serious actor, but he was also an action hero actor. So, you know, you get kind of like, I guess you could say Harrison Ford is a little bit like that. Um, You know, Robert Downey Jr. can go back and forth and think situations like that. But I'll tell you, uh, Connery in 63, when he debuts as Bond, the confluence of all the right things, you know, the charisma, the sexiness, the action ability, the the movements of a cat, uh, just the way he looked, uh, he just blew everybody away. And he got better and better through Thunderball. But by the end of Thunderball and then going into the movie that was shot in Japan, you only lived twice, he had started to lose um, kind of the love of the role. And he didn't like the long shooting schedule. You have to spend six months making one movie. And he'd already done Hitchcock's Marnie. So he knew he could get work outside the bonds there. So 
he was ready to leave and uh, moved on, although he came back twice to play James Bond twice more uh, in, in uh, Diamonds Are Forever and Never Say Never Again. He, his career reached many highs with other films. I've always had questions about Never Say Never. So it's it's a Bond movie, but it's not technically a Bond movie, right? Well, it's um, it's not officially a Bond movie. It's kind of like the competition. You know, when Ian Fleming was writing his novels back in the 50s, he was, he was introduced to a producer named Kevin McClory who didn't like any of his novels. He said, if you really want to get a movie made out of his novels, which Fleming was very interested in doing, you've got to write something with some real cinematic value. And I, I don't think he was right in decrying those novels because they're all very cinematic. But he got together, he brought in a writer named Jack Whittingham, and he and McCory and Fleming, uh, I mean, he and uh, Fleming and, and Winningham got together and they wrote a, a screen treatment called Latitude 78 West. And it was about an A-bomb hijacking that takes the bomb to the, the Bahamas. And it, it's interesting because McCory had worked for Mike Todd on Around the World in 80 Days in 56. And he liked the idea of going to exotic places and making it a much more big screen epic. Unfortunately, at that time, uh, none of the studios would touch the series unless they had an actor under contract for seven years to make multiple films. And no actor at that time respected Bond enough to do that. So the project fell apart. And then Fleming did something that uh, was very bad. He took the story uh, ingredients and wrote a script, uh, excuse me, wrote a novel called Thunderball and did not credit Whittingham or McClory. So they took him to court. It was a two-year running battle, and Fleming lost all the film rights to Thunderball. And so uh, now the Broccoli Saltzman series has started, Dr. No from Rush Who Love Goldfinger, and McClory had no way of getting Thunderball made now because Sean Connery was under lock and key to producers Albert Broccoli and Harry Saltzman. So he made a deal with the with the team to produce Thunderball with them. And that's why when you watch Thunderball, the first credit for producing it is um, Kevin McClory with the, with the um, understanding that for 10 years, he wouldn't do another Bond movie based on the rights he got from Fleming. Now, sim uh, kind of um, in, in a basic simple sense, he got the rights to Thunderball. Why would he think he could make other Bond movies? Well, there were 10 different treatments of Thunderball with various villains. So he had this idea that you could do multiple Bond movies and start a multiple series. But 10 years after Thunderball came out, Broccoli, uh, uh, now running the series on his own, wouldn't have nothing with competition. He didn't want that to happen. So he fought them in the courts. And for eight years, McClory was unable to get another Bond movie made until he met uh, Jack Schwartzman, who was a producer with Lorimar, who was a legal brain, uh, brain, brain, you know, real whiz. And he convinced McClory that you can do another Thunderball. You just have to change the name. Mm -hmm. So Never Say Never Again is simply a remake of Thunderball. They made a few changes. It's closer to the book than the uh, original movie. But that's how you got Never Say Never Again. That's fascinating. Interestingly, the UA, you know, the UA people who own the Bond series with the Broccoli family bought that picture in the last 10 years. So it's now it's now part of the, you know, the family. They own it. OK, that's fascinating. So uh, before you got into all this, you were also involved in movies. And we have met P. 
people in different areas of the film business, but I have not talked to a unit publicist yet. Can you tell us what that job is like? Sure, sure. Um, you're part of the crew. Uh, any PR matters that are done during shooting are under your responsibility. So if Entertainment Tonight comes to the set to interview your star, you have to coordinate all of that. You write the press, kit, you interview all the actors and the key crew, put all that information into a press kit, and you work with a still photographer to get the appropriate stills. Uh, you're the primary PR liaison throughout production. It's uh, it's a union job, uh, unless you're working on a non-union product. And uh, I've kind of discovered it while working in a, a PR agency back in the um, late 70s. My first job actually in the business, I was hired by United Artists. Uh, they had noticed that I had been going to science fiction conventions, you know, the Comic-Cons of the 70s. Sure promoting a magazine I was working for at the time called Cine Fantastique, which was published out of Chicago, one of the first magazines devoted to science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And they couldn't afford to pay me for my articles on 50 science fiction films, so they would give me copies of the magazine to sell at the conventions. So I was able to get that job, and for 10 months, I went on the road to promote the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So that was my PR, my introduction to Hollywood. And then, because I didn't even know what PR was. I mean, if, uh, if you had told me I was an advanced PR guy, I wouldn't have known what that was. But I ended up working in an agency for a while and a unit publicist would come in for various reasons. And I started to research what a unit publicist was because I wanted to work in the business. I wasn't making any real money from writing. It was just kind of uh, hobby money. So I discovered that uh, I could do that. And I, I got my first unit assignment in 1981. I went up to Wyoming and worked on an Alan Rudolph thriller called Endangered Species with Robert Urich and Joe Beth Williams. And then I, I was always assigned the lousy sequel to a good movie. So <laughs> I, I worked on Porky 2. I worked on Weekend at Bernie's 2. I worked on Eddie and the Cruisers 2. And I worked on the sequel to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Uh, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. <laughs> yeah, some of those are guilty pleasures of mine. <laughs> yeah, no, but they're always fun. And then I started working for Showtime in the early 90s. And uh, I became uh, an executive who actually hired the unit publicist. And they were producing so many original movies. I got to produce my first movie for them in 2002. It was a, a baseball comedy called Bleacher Bums which uh, was about the Chicago Cubs fans, hence my Chicago Cubs paraphernalia on my shirt here. Um, I'm a big Cubs fan. So I did that, and then I did a true World War II drama for the Hallmark Channel called Silent Night, uh, which starred Linda Hamilton of Terminator fame. Um, true World War II incident about a truce in the middle of a cabin in the middle of the Battle of the Bulge during Christmas Eve 44, where German and American combat troops actually broke bread together and became friends. Um, I was very proud of that. And then that's kind of what I'm doing now. I'm writing and uh, producing. I'm trying to sell things every day. I'm writing the heat, heat of the Hollywood wars, trying to sell films and television shows. That's, that's fantastic. I got to ask you, though, going back, you worked on Pretty in Pink as the unit publicist. Did you meet John Hughes at all? Oh, I worked very closely with him. Uh, I was primary PR person on that show. Uh, I had worked with Molly Ringwald uh, the two years earlier on a rather forgotten 3D film called Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, uh, which was just kind of 
you know, another one of those stinkers. Uh, <laughs> but um, Molly was great. I uh, worked with Andrew McCarthy and uh, John Cryer. And uh, it was kind of an interesting thing. I don't know if you guys have been out to L.A. lately. But back in 85, uh, this was shot on the Third Street Promenade, which was which looked kind of like Atlantic City on a bad day. There, nothing was open. It was all closed and uh, uh you know, the, all, all the uh, stores had gone out of business, so it was virtually nobody there. Now it's one of the most popular parts to visit in LA. Fascinating. Are you going to follow up the, the Cubs movie, now that the Curse of the Billy Goat's broken? <laughs> <laughs> I've thought about it, uh, but I, I don't know. I, um, I've, got, I've actually, uh, I'm writing some original comedies uh, that I think have... Uh, have some might have some life. Uh, we were big fans of a '50s courtroom drama called Twelve Angry Men." Uh, Henry Fonda, you know, great movie. Absolutely. Well, we've, we've written a comedy spoof called Twelve Anxious Men," and uh, we, <laughs> we're we're pretty high on that one. And then we've got a great. We've got something called "The Line Kings." Uh, L I N E. It's about a group of Star Wars fans who line up three days before the movie opens on Hollywood Boulevard. And they get into this titanic competition with another group that wants to be first in line because the studio has promised if you're first in line after three days, you can win a part in the new Star Wars movie. So it's kind of like Animal House meets uh, meets Two Geeks. Yeah, I'd watch that. I would watch that too. I, I saw that online. The line I was going to ask you about that. That's awesome. Like yeah, no, we're, we're, we're out there every day. I mean, it's, you know, I'm in the heart of Hollywood. It's the, by the way, it's the worst time to be selling anything. I mean, it, the business is kind of, the movie business has come to kind of a, a screeching halt. Yeah, there's some movies being produced, but usually it's by some major producers for the major studios who can afford the, the uh, COVID protocols that are very expensive to adhere to. I heard it's like an extra like million dollars for a television show, an episode to do with the COVID stuff. I wouldn't doubt it. Uh, I think that everybody's being tested constantly. Uh, people are, I was reading today that some people go around with those pool donuts, uh, you know, those pool things, and make sure you're a foot of six feet apart. It's pretty crazy out here, but I, I maintain my optimism that good, good properties can find their, you know, find their home. Oh, I want to know, uh, what got you writing the uh, book about the Twilight Zone? Well, um, you know, uh, since it can take literally decades to get movies made, I mean, literally, what are you doing for the next 12 years while you're waiting for your movie to come in? So I realized that I can't do this. I've got to get out into the marketplace with something that I'm proud of. And I, I, I know the Twilight Zone canon pretty well, and uh, I know the books that are out there. I mean, one of my favorite books of the 80s was Mark Sacree's The Twilight Zone Companion, which was a great book that first introduced all the episodes to me. But it didn't have a lot of behind-the-scenes information. It didn't really focus much on the actors. And I really thought that of all the television series ever produced, The Twilight Zone probably had the best cast, you know, just wonderful actors. Because they gave character actors who were not usually given lead parts, they gave them lead parts. And People like Burgess Meredith and Jack Klugman just shined in those roles. So I saw a great opportunity to write an encyclopedia. Also, I was very friendly with Carol Serling, uh, who had seen something I produced in 99. I, 
I decided I was going to direct something because I thought maybe someday somebody would give me the opportunity to direct something and I better see if I have any talent whatsoever. Otherwise, I'm not going to be up for anything like that. So I decided to remake a Twilight Zone episode. And uh, under my own dime, I I picked uh, the seventh is made up of phantoms, which is an episode where a modern tank crew is on maneuvers in Montana and South Dakota, and they go through a time warp and end up at Custer's last stand. <laughs> so it was a pretty cool episode. And a friend of mine who is a military liaison officer with Hollywood had met the Marine Corps liaison officer, and he liked the idea. And we got complete cooperation from the Marines to shoot at Camp Pendleton. Sweet. We did, and they gave us all these big military equipment and uh, light armor vehicles, and um, I, I had a ball. It was I, I learned everything you can learn in three days of shooting, and uh, I, I realized that unless you have enough time, you shouldn't be directing because directing is a very painstaking thing, and we were dealing with weather issues and crew issues, um, so I prefer to be the writer and producer. <laughs> But it was fun. It was fun. Uh, Michael Cole, who was one of the original members of the Mod Squad, played one of our guys, and he was good. That's him. awesome. So um, uh, where can everybody find you online? I have uh, a number of Facebook uh, posts. I, I do Steve Rubin, R-U-B-I-N, uh, which is my main Facebook. And then uh, I have a, a Facebook page called the James Bond Movie Encyclopedia where they can see where we post. We're constantly posting this day in James Bond movie history uh, to, you know, acknowledge the history of Bond. So I'm doing that. And then um, that's probably the best way. I'm also on LinkedIn if you want to find me on LinkedIn under Steve Rubin, R-U-B-I-N. I will have links to the upcoming James Bond book in the description of this for everybody to jump on Amazon and purchase it. I could talk to you all day. You seem like you have stories for years to tell. It's yeah, well, that's, that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm actually developing a, a TV show, which I think is kind of cool. It's um, back in the 70s. I, I was one of the last people to interview Alfred Hitchcock. That's awesome. And uh, he uh, did when I was with Cinefantastique, I was asked to cover an interview uh, on the making of the birds. And they asked me if I would interview Hitchcock. And I said, of course. And uh, I'm now animating that interview. It was only on audio, yeah. but I'm, I'm, I have an animator animating Hitchcock and myself, and we're, we're proposing a, a series of, of um, behind-the-scenes shows. We call it uh, The Secret History of Hollywood, and uh, it would feature like a half-hour format, interviews with famous people uh, about the making of all the Hollywood classic films and shows, and it would be animated. That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. So I'm, I'm doing that and then uh, promoting the Bond book. Uh, I, when would this be on the air? I will have it out before the book is out. So it'll be out next Monday. Next Monday. Okay. Because this Saturday we're doing this trivia marathon on James Bond. But that they can go to the uh, – they'll, they'll see the results on the website. I'll post all the results on it. Absolutely. So, real fast, what's your favorite Bond gadget? I was thinking about Q for the last five minutes. What's your favorite Bond gadget? Do you have one? <laughs> Well, technically, the Aston Martin DB5 with modification <laughs> from Goldfinger is the best gadget ever conceived of in the history of show business. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, when I saw Goldfinger, you know, you remember a lot of things from seeing Bond movies. You remember the girls, of course. You remember Bond. 
But when that gleaming silver Aston Martin comes on screen and Q's showing them how it works, I'm sitting in my seat at the Chinese theater in Hollywood thinking, this is so <laughs> cool. You know, it's so cool. And, and I think every, every young guy and probably a lot of women too, uh, who saw that, that car just were very impressed. And I think Corgi put out a, a model of it that year and sold a ton of those. And I read recently that Aston Martin just built 13 of them as kind of a reissue car. If you got it. If you got three million dollars lying around doing nothing, you can pick up. Although they've already sold out, but yeah, three million dollars for a vintage DB5. Yeah, let's go to the bank. It's pretty fun. <laughs> Put it on my credit card. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Steve, for coming on. It's been an absolute blast to talk to you. I hope we get to do this again sometime. Anytime um, you want to talk movies or TV shows, I'm your guy. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Great. And from all of us, have a great night. Thank you.